Morning Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. I want to thank you for this opportunity to come and speak to you today. Uh, before I get started, I'd like to introduce my wife, Carla. <laughs> uh, we've been married for 22 years, if you can just so you know who she is. Um, and we have recently moved here uh, to Denmark. Uh, my wife, Carla, is a retired children's librarian, um, and I work here in, in Denmark as a statistical consultant. Right now, my company that I work for has me contracting at Leo Pharma. And just a, a little bit ab about me, not necessarily just, just because about me, but it ties into our message today, because we're going to be talking about creation and things like that. I have a Bachelor of Sciences degree with a double major in biology and chemistry. I have a Master of Science degree in public health. I've worked for 35 years in the healthcare. The first 15 years I worked in medical schools uh, doing statistical analysis for principal investigators, uh, uh, staff, and professors that did research. Past 20 years, I've, I've done uh, work in mainly in the pharmaceutical and medical device industries and have become an expert in my field, and that's why I'm here in Denmark, is because of my expertise. Last year, a recruiter uh, contacted me last September, and through a series of events, I'm now here working in Denmark and absolutely loving it working here in Denmark. It's a pleasure to be here. I think Americans can learn a lot from Danish people, uh, so I'm very happy to be here and experience uh, living and working in Denmark. But today we're going to be talking about uh, creation, and uh, what I would like to begin with is an experience that a year ago that my wife and I uh, did in August of last year. August 21st. Does anybody have any idea what happened August 21st of last year? Something happened, a big event, in, at least in the United States, a total solar eclipse. It was the first time in 99 years that an eclipse had gone the entire uh, width of the United States, over 3,000 miles. And so I am a photographer, not a professional, but a, an amateur photographer. And um, I really have enjoyed, I've gone many places and photographed many things. I found out that Google and UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, had a joint project to uh, photograph the total solar eclipse and use it for research. And so they recruited over a thousand photographers to take pictures of the total solar eclipse and I had to pass an exam and go through some webinars, and everybody that, that did that had to go through the same thing. And so I'd just like to begin today showing you some pictures. So I think Emma's back there, and we can pull up. This is a, a, a picture I took. I have eight photos I can show you of the total solar eclipse. So as we go through, one of these photos, by the way, made it into a movie as a reward for everybody that participated in this project with UC Berkeley and Google, people got at least one of their photographs that was made into a movie that's on YouTube of the total solar eclipse. So the idea that I kind of like, would like to begin with today is how we lost a sense of wonder about God's creation. 
This was an absolute experience. Carla and I were in Newport, Oregon, which is on the coast of Oregon, and we were in the totality. Those pictures that you're looking at are in the 100% totality. And in that two-minute period, yes, it got dark. It's just like it, you know, the sun was blocked. It was quite an experience. And it just had, you know, made me wonder about God's creation. Another experience, thank you, Emma, for, for showing those photos. I have some others uh, at, at the, later in the uh, talk, uh, some other types of photos to show. But another experience is back in 2015, another thing that I really like are meteor showers. And there's one that's called the Perseid meteor shower, which occurs every August. And my wife and I and a young lady who uh, lived with us at that time went to a place called Hat Creek, California. And basically, if you can find Hat Creek, you're lost. <laughs> It's near Mount Lassen, actually, and so we went there to Mount Lassen. We got out there in the parking lot of Mount Lassen, and, uh, which is a national park. We pulled up some chairs. It was very late at night, and we just looked at the sky and observed the meteor shower. I did not photograph it because it is just, if you've ever seen a meteor shower, it's just like all of a sudden a star shoots across the sky. It's almost impossible to take photographs of a meteor shower. But it was like God put on a show for us. I thoroughly enjoyed just sitting there, looking at the sky, and just noticing that, wow, every few seconds, zoom, you know, a star would shoot across the sky. But I wonder, have we lost a sense? We live in a, a digital age with special effects. I mean, I grew up reading uh, comic books, especially the Hulk and Thor, and now they make movies about Hulk and Thor and the Avengers. And if you've been to one of those movies, special effects are all over the place. And I wonder, has that affected us that we have lost a wow factor of God and his creation and his word? And that's what I really am going to talk about today. What do I do, I, what do, I do personally? I just would like to personally share with you to keep that awe and wonder in my personal life. Well, two things. Like I mentioned, I love taking pictures of, of nature. I have walked all over this city of here of Copenhagen just taking pictures. My favorite place, Friedrichsberg Garden. I have taken so many pictures of a Friedrichsberg Garden this winter when there was snow and parents were out there with their children and they're doing sledding. I've taken all kinds of pictures in the spring and so I just love taking pictures. Nature really fascinates me. And then because of my scientific background, I have a sense of wonder about our human body, about the universe, and such things like that. And ever since I was in college, I've been especially fascinated with the topic of evolution versus creation. And I'll be sharing a little bit of that later uh, in our uh, talk today. And the second thing that I really have done to keep the wonder of God is my dad was a, a minister, and every single morning my dad would get up, and we had a dog named Sport, and Sport would get in my dad's lap, and my dad would read his Bible. My dad had a habit of reading through the Bible every single year. And so as a teenager, I decided I wanted to be like my dad. 
And so I have read through the Bible more than 40 times in my life, uh, reading through every single year, and I have read through more than 20 translations of the Bible. You may not realize that there's more than 20. There's actually a lot more uh, of the versions of the Bible. But those two things really keep the, the awe and wonder. I never get tired of reading God's word, especially David versus Goliath. That story, I don't care how many times I've read the story, I still get excited about David taking that slingshot and slaying uh, Goliath. So those things really kind of what helped me. And I hope as we talk today about this, as I talk to you, that the awe and wonder of God, both in his creation and in his word, comes to life. So I basically have three points for today. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see that God's majesty is revealed in his work. In verses 7 through 11, we'll see that God's majesty is revealed in his word. And finally, in verses 12 through 14, we'll see that God's majesty inspires me to worship. So three things about God's majesty, his work, his word, and worship. Those three W's that we'll look at. So let's look at Psalm 19, and I'll read the whole thing uh, to, to begin with. And to begin with, in the Hebrew, actually, the, what we have is the inscription above. That's actually in the text, so I'll start there. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the ends of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant mourned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the first thing you should notice, and I mentioned that because the inscription is there in the Hebrew, it says, to the choir master. So this was something that was intended to be sung, Many of the psalms were what we call the psalms of the ascents, like from Psalm 120 and onwards, were called psalms of ascent because they, as we're going up to Jerusalem, 
they would sing those songs. So the psalm of ascent means going up. And so these were songs that were made to be sung. A little bit about this, this psalm here, the structure of it, it's a Torah psalm, Torah being the Hebrew word for law. And so it's a celebration of the law of God. And the second thing to notice about these verses here, in the Hebrew, two different types of word for God are used. In verses 1 through 6, it's the word El, E-L. And then in verse 7 through the end of the chapter, the word for God is Yahweh. And this is very similar to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where in Genesis chapter 1, in the first couple of verses of Genesis chapter 2, the word El is used. So the word El, E-L, a name for God, is quite often associated with creation, his work where Yahweh is the personal name. When Moses said, God, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. He was revealing his personal name, I am Yahweh. And so that's the difference between Yahweh and El, El being more related to God and his work and Yahweh more towards the personal God. So that gives us just a little bit of background. So let's look first of all at God's majesty revealed in his work in verses 1 through 6. So it begins here, uh, as Cindy pointed out, this is very poetic type language. When it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That reminds me of my experience, like at my mission about at Hat Creek, where we looked up into the sky and we saw God's majesty with the meteor shower. You just look up in the sky. The sky is proclaiming, is saying, in figurative language, is saying, I am here, I am God. And it says here in verse 2, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, we look at creation, we should just see that creation is screaming, I am God. I'm the one who created the heavens and the earth. Now, we look at verse 3. It seems a little, a little bit little contradictory at first because it says, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. We just saw in verses 1 and 2 that creation screams, I am God. And yet verse 3 seems to say, the voice is not heard. So what is this saying? Well, in another translation, I, by the way, I, I've used the ESV, the English Standard Version, for most of my study, and what I'm reading from is from the ESV. But the New Living Translation, I like the way it words verse 3. It says, they speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. And so what it's saying is, yes, in verses 1 and 2, creation is speaking, but not literally. In other words, we don't hear the creation speaking audibly. God doesn't audibly speak to us through creation. It's a figure of speech. We should be able to observe and look at creation and think, wow, God is speaking to me, but it's not a literal voice that's speaking. And then also I think that what David has in mind here is that, that not everybody is going to hear that. Have you ever had the experience of being in nature with a group of people and you're just in awe and wonder and the person next to you is just like, big deal. 
you know, not everybody is inspired. They should be inspired by God's creation, but not everybody is. So not everybody's going to hear God's creation maybe the way we hear it because we're in tune with God. But at least it, nature should be a way of God revealing himself to everybody. So what I would like to give is just a few examples of this idea that creation speaks to us. I've been doing a, a series with the Quest kids here, and I really have enjoyed it. You, you parents that have uh, kids in the Quest, they are wonderful. I really have enjoyed them. And this series I've been doing with the Quest kids comes out of a series I did last summer back in my home church in the San Francisco Bay Area, looking at the flaws in evolution. And I'm just going to take one little thing today uh, and another little thing to talk about, but one to begin with. And this ties in. The reason I showed you the pictures of the total solar eclipse, there's a person by the name of Guillermo Gonzalez. He was a professor of astrophysics at Iowa State University. And back in the 1990s, he, taught, he saw a total solar eclipse in India. And all of a sudden, it clicked in his mind that the same factors that make a total solar eclipse rare are exactly the same factors that make life on Earth rare. And so he wrote a book called The Privileged Planet. It's an awesome book if you want to get it. He also has a DVD and there's a website. You can look it up, The Privileged Planet by Guillermo Gonzalez. And so he, he, he looked at that. And years and years ago, back in the 1960s, there was a project that was begun called SETI. Everybody here heard of SETI, S-E-T-I, the Search for Extra Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligent Life, <laughs> SETI. There was a person named Drake, and he came up with this equation for life in the universe called Drake's Equation. And basically, he came up with seven factors that would be necessary for life to exist somewhere in the universe. Well, since then, that list has expanded, and Guillermo Gonzalez has now come up with 28 factors that have to be present for life to exist here on Earth. And this is a big assumption because we don't know, you know what the percentage of these are actually occurring. By, my, by the way, my expertise being the statistics, this is really up my alley, you know, the idea here. But the, if there was a one in 10 chance of one of these factors occurring, and if all 28 have to occur at the same time, the probability of all 28 occurring, if you have a 1 in 10 chance, is uh, 1 in 10 to the 28th power. That is an exceedingly small number. And so what Guillermo Gonzalez says in his book, his point is, life on Earth is rare. There are just too many factors that have to happen simultaneously, have to happen at the same time, for life on Earth here to be an accident. And so that's a very good book. I would recommend it to you. One of the factors which I'm going to mention, and I'm going to show you a couple of uh, slides here. If we can pull up the slides, there's the first one. We're going to look at something called the galactic habitable zone. 
This is a picture of our Milky Way galaxy. And you notice that blue part there is where life could be inhabited anywhere within that Milky Way galaxy. So keep that in mind. Can you show the next slide? This next slide, you can see the sun. If you notice the, the arm that comes out at about 3 o'clock from the sun, you notice there's like a hole or a gap there in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, that is what allows us to see outside of the Milky Way galaxy. If you remember, the habitable zone kind of encircled the whole area. If we were just a few degrees back further towards the, the center of the Milky Way galaxy, we would still be in the habitable zone, we still would be alive here, but we would have no knowledge of anything outside the Milky Way galaxy. Now, that's pretty um, amazing to me that the idea, is this by accident that we just happen by accident to be placed where we could see outer space? I think not. I think it's a part of what God intended for us as humans. He, he says in the Bible in Genesis that we are created in God's image. That means we are intelligent beings. So you can take that uh, picture down now. And so if God created us to be intelligent beings, why wouldn't he want us to know about his universe? If we were not in that exact spot, we would not know about anything outside the Milky Way galaxy. God wants us to know about his universe. Therefore, I believe that God placed us in the exact correct position in the Milky Way galaxy so that we would know about outer space. How many here have seen the wonderful photographs of the Hubble telescope? You ever seen some of those? They're pretty awe-inspiring. We wouldn't know about those unless we were in the exact spot that we needed to be in. I don't believe it's by accident that God put us in the right space so that we can discover his great universe. Another thing I want to talk about is this. Hold, everybody hold up your hand, hold up either your left or right hand, and do this. How many, how many people, when you did that, were amazed? <laughs> Nobody? You should be. You should be. This is called an opposable thumb. All primates, like apes and monkeys and, and humans, have a, a thumb. We have the one that can stretch the farthest. No other primate can did what I just did. Why? Do you think that that's you know, an, an accident? No, it's, I believe it's by design. Think about this. Here are some things that you may have done this morning uh, before you got to church using this. You may have uh, shampooed your hair. You may have fed the cat. You may have done some baking. We had a potluck today. You may have opened a package. You may have folded the laundry. You probably zipped up your pants, at least if you're a guy. And you probably buttoned your shirt, at least if you're a guy, unless you have a pullover. All those things. Now, of all those things that I just listed there, the most important is feeding the cat. 
And if you don't believe me, ask the cat. <laughs> but you should be in absolute wonder that God gave us a thumb that can do that. Why? Because have you seen any other primates that can build a skyscraper? No. Only humans have the ability to grasp a tool that can build something big like a skyscraper. What about small? Have you ever seen a primate build a microchip? No. God gave us the ability, the fine-tuning here, to work instruments that can build a microchip. This should actually amaze you, actually, that we can do this, our opposable thumb. God gave us the thumb that we need to do the task that we need to do. And other primates, like apes, they are knuckle walkers. They don't need a thumb that can do this. They need a thumb to walk on their knuckles. So God has uniquely designed each of us the way that he needs us to be to glorify him. Yes, apes glorify him when they walk on their knuckles. Monkeys glorify God when they swing from the trees. They're all part of God's creation, and they have the right design for the right purpose. And we have the right design for the right purpose. So this is what I, I see about God's creation, that God has you know, uniquely designed us for a purpose. Let's look back now, pick, picking up in verse 4 of Psalm 19, when it says, Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And starting here, it talks about the sun. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and a circuit from to the, to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. We see here, especially this, this last phrase, it's talking about the sun, that God has created this sun for us and placed it there in the right place to bring heat to us. But it says here, nothing is hidden from the heat. This will connect down, if we jump down just a little bit, uh, we'll get there in a, a little bit, down in uh, verse uh, 12, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults. So this idea here of hidden faults are things that we do wrong. And the idea is that so as the sun exposes things, you can't hide from the heat of the sun, so God's word exposes things in us. And that's where the rest of this psalm is going to pick up the idea that God's word is magnified. It's a part of his magnificence. And one of the things that it does, it exposes our faults. So the connection from verses 1 through 6 to the rest, because it seems like an abrupt transition here in this psalm, but it's not really because the hidden uh, not being hidden from the heat of the sun is connected to the hiddenness of our faults in verse 12. And it's God's word that exposes. We know that. What does it say in Hebrews uh, 4.12? That God's word discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. So that's the, one of the purposes of God's word, what it, we'll see here, that it exposes things. So now let's look at verses 7 through 11. And this is the point that God reveals his majesty in his word. The first point was what? 
that God reveals his majesty in his work in verses 1 through 6, and now we're going to see God reveals his majesty in his word. And we look here at verses, uh, these verses here, 7 through 11, what we saw in creation was God's general revelation. Everybody can look to the sky. When we look at God's word, God's word is his special revelation to all, uh, to all that hear God's word. So everybody can hear creation, but only those that hear God's word can receive God's special revelation. So that's the contrast between verses 1 through 6, general revelation to everybody, and in verses 7 through 11, we see God's word, but only those that can hear the word receive God's special revelation to us. Notice three things. When I looked at the structure of verses 7 through 9, is that there's a couplet. There's two types of descriptions of God's word in each verse. So verse 7 has two, verse 8 has two, verse 9 has two. And when I looked at the structure of this, it struck me that there's three things. There's, first of all, a way or a method that God is revealing himself. There's then a description of that way or method. And then there's a result or an outcome of that. So let's look at verse first part of verse 7 it says the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul so the way or method of this is the law of the lord this description is perfect and what happens as a result of that is it revives the soul and so you look at each of these so if you go down let's just look at this kind of in a different order the way of the lord is the method the next one is the testimony of the lord Verse 8, the precept of the Lord. Verse 8, the commandment of the Lord. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord. And then finally, the rules of the Lord. Almost all of these ways or methods, by the way, are also found in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. And so as we look at this, these are different things or ways that God has revealed. And one that may sound the most odd is the fear of the Lord. But definitely the fear of the Lord is a way of revealing himself. Just think about the Israelites on Mount Sinai. They were afraid when God revealed himself. So the fear of the Lord is a method of God revealing himself. It may not ordinarily think of it that way. But and then you look at the, uh, the other way is all the descriptors is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. All those are descriptions of God's word. And then we finally have the outcome, our results here in verses 7, reviving the soul, making the wise simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, and righteous altogether. So these are just a way to look at it. David is magnifying. This is very poetic language, and he's lifting up and magnifying the god's word here and showing us the different ways that he has revealed himself and if you look at all these words that describe it's a description of god's word and then there's a result or outcome most of it for us like reviving the soul so that's what i see here in these verses that david is very much magnifying god's word here then in verse 10 he talks about the value of God's word. 
And he says here, it's more desired than gold and sweeter than honey. And those are two things that we think are very valuable. Gold, we think, is being very valuable. Honey is something being very sweet. And yet, David says he would rather have God's word than to have, you know, gold or to have something so sweet as honey. So he's placing a a very high value on God's word here. And then verse 11 to me is a very interesting verse because he says, Moreover, by them is your servant mourned, and keeping them there is great reward. And we may think, you know, what's the benefit of keeping God's word? Some of you may have wondered, why am I in church here today? It's a beautiful day outside. Why shouldn't I be walking around the lake and enjoying God's creation? Wouldn't that be a good thing to do? But we're here because we want to obey God. God commands us to gather together and to fellowship together. And so we're here because we want to obey God. But there's a great benefit to that. And that's what I want to look at and delve into a little bit is the benefit of obeying God. But there's a very familiar verse which I'm going to paraphrase for you. It's the verse in Proverbs that says, you know, where there is no vision, people perish. A paraphrase of that that I come across is where there is no revelation of God's word, people leave unrestrained lives, but the person who obeys God's law is happy and blessed. And that's what I really want to dwell on. Think about that. Where there is no revelation, in other words, where there is no teaching, where there is no preaching, where there is no speaking about God's word, people will live unrestrained lives. And I think we see that a lot in our society. People that are not brought up with values and taught the Word of God, they tend to just do whatever feels good. They live an unrestrained life. But there's a benefit for those that, uh, of us that decide to follow God's Word. There's a benefit to that. And there's a reward. We are happy and blessed. As I mentioned uh, earlier at the beginning, I have a master's degree in public health. I would like to look at just three examples. Now, normally when we think about examples of God's majesty and his word, we probably want to think about things like the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, and that certainly is something that is majestic. But what I would like to look at and show to you some examples of God's knowledge and how he protected his people because of the things he knew. And I think that's just as great a source of majesty that God knew things long before we did and he protected us. And if we had followed God's law, we would be protected. And so the first one that I would like to look at and we'll just refer to this a very long chapter leviticus chapter 13 and it deals with leprosy which really in leprosy in the bible is not leprosy as we know it today today we know it as hansen's disease whereas back in the old testament times there were a collection of skin diseases that fell under the category of leprosy and in verse 4 of chapter 13 the priest is allowed to examine a person that had a skin disease and if he said you know what i think this person should be quarantined 
then that person had to be quarantined for seven days. Now, we may think that's very draconian or very, like, punishment. Why do I have to be quarantined for seven days? And yet it was what God was doing was protecting, because if that was truly an infectious skin disease, by quarantining that person, he's preventing the spread of that disease to other people. So and actually, Moses, in that day and time, was light years ahead of the cultures around him by listening to God and saying, I give the priest the authority to quarantine somebody who may have an infectious disease for seven days. It was a very good public health measure to prevent the spread of disease within the Israelite community. So that was a very good thing that he did there in Leviticus with skin diseases. The other one, we go back a couple of chapters in Leviticus chapter 11, which deals with clean and unclean animals. And in verse 7 of Leviticus chapter 11 is the forbidding of pork. Now you know that today many Jews still do not eat pork and many Muslims and maybe other religions for, do not eat pork because it's forbidden. Basically the reason is because of the basic meat sources, chicken, beef, and uh, pork, the hardest to cook is actually pork. And in that time of Moses, meat was tended to be undercooked. Undercooked chicken, undercooked beef, not so bad. Undercooked pork can be very dangerous. And so God decided, rather than tell them, how do I communicate that you need to cook your pork more, he said, don't eat pork. Well, there's diseases like trichinosis and other diseases that could be transmitted. And so by the forbidding of pork, God was saying to them, I'm going to prevent you. You follow my law and don't eat pork. You won't get diseases associated with eating pork. So that was a God's way of protecting them. A third way that God protected them in a public health sense is found in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now this, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 23. The context in these verses, in verses 9 through 13 of Deuteronomy 23, is when Israel is encamped against another army. And so it's the idea that maybe they're going to war with another nation. And he tells them there in verse 13 of chapter 23, this is a little bit gross maybe, but if you have to go to the bathroom and do excrement, go outside the camp, take a trowel, dig a hole, and bury the excrement. And that, again, is a very wise thing to tell them. Why? Because diseases like diarrhea and dysentery and other diseases can be spread because of that. And so we look at these public health examples God was protecting his people because germ theory was not developed until the 1800s. About the 1850s is when germs began to be understood that they can cause diseases. Uh, when I first got here to um, uh, Copenhagen, I took the Carlsberg uh, tour and learned that you know, the water was very polluted here in Copenhagen. And when Carlsberg wanted to found his uh, brewery, he chose that place because there was pure water. And so that is something that was very important to have a pure source of water for Carlsberg to make his beer. And so, you know, but 
that's what I'm saying, but it's about the mid-1800s when Carlsberg began to do that, develop his beer here in Copenhagen. And this, they didn't know about diseases and being spread. And so the water, my understanding, in Copenhagen was very polluted. People would just dump garbage out into the lakes and things like that. But that was just typical of society back in that time in Europe and even in America, uh, the, the spreading of disease. So God was saying, if you obey my law, you're going to be protected. And this was actually a promise that he gave. So God, in his wisdom and his majesty, says, obey these laws and you'll be prevented. In Exodus chapter 15, it says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So obedience to God has reward is the point here in verse 11. We obey God's word. He protects us. And so that's what we really need to learn from this. It's not by accident that God put these things in his word for us to obey. It's for our good. It's for our reward. It's for our benefit that we have these. Then this verses starting verse 12 uh, begins a high note to conclude this psalm. So we looked at two things so far. Is that what? God's majesty is revealed in his work. God's majesty is revealed in his word. And the third thing is that God's majesty inspires me to worship. So as we look here at these closing verses, David begins with a very humble response by saying, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So I see here humility. Why? Because David refers to himself as a, as a servant, being very humble and saying, I'm a servant. And he also wants to be innocent. And I think innocence is a part of being humble before God. And so he has a very great desire. He doesn't want to have any sin that would prevent him from having fellowship with God. And that's what happens. We have sin in our life, and that fellowship with God is broken. And when that fellowship with God is broken, then that, that awe and wonder of his work and of his uh, majesty through his work and of his majesty through his word, it dims. I think that's part of it, that we need to be innocent before God. We need to be pure before God so that we're still in awe and wonder, so that we still have the wow factor of God and what he's done. And so we look here in verse 14, really is the, the, the climax here. He says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Again, that very humble attitude. And what does he wind up here saying? O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He's acknowledging that God is his only source. By saying Lord, he's saying Yahweh. He's saying, O oh Lord, I have nobody else. I have nobody else to turn to for strength, my rock. 
I have nobody else that's my redeemer. The redeemer is the one who stands in the place of you and redeems you. And so he, he says here in this, this high point, you know, my confession is, God, is that you are my rock and my redeemer. You are everything to me. So basically he's saying here three things again in this, this psalm is that God reveals his majesty in his work, God reveals his majesty in his word, and this majesty then inspires me to worship. And just to conclude this, to me, worship is more than just what we're about to do when we sing songs. That is certainly a great part of worship. We need to sing songs to worship God. But to me, the greatest form of, of worshiping God is obedience. Why? Because if we understand who God is and we're really wanting to worship Him, it should be more than our words. It should be our actions that say that we agree with God's majesty. And if we agree with God's majesty, why wouldn't we obey Him? And so obedience to me is the, really what shows that what your words are are consistent. And then isn't that what we do in relationships, that we see somebody acting one way and their words are another way? And when we say that they're the opposites, what we do? We call them a hypocrite. And that's what a hypocrite is. We say one thing, but we do another thing. So let's really, I want to challenge you that the way to really honor God is not just with your words, but with your actions. And that's what I get out of this psalm. Thank you. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.